We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. This is Cheryl Brederson in studio with Jasmine Allnut. And we are moving into uh, women who were martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And last week we did Blandina because mm-hmm. she's pretty much the first woman that we know. I mean, we know. Recorded. There were, yeah. Recorded. We know that there were countless women Absolutely. who died. And then um, Perpetua. And mm-hmm. one of these women was a slave. Mm-hmm. The other was from nobility. One was from the area we call France. Mm, yeah. And the other was the area we would call North Africa now or Carthage. Yes, exactly. And so what I wanted to do is uh, tell, I didn't have time, but I, there were a couple other gals I just wanted to, you know, mention briefly, and then we're going to kind of transition out of that era into more of the medieval period. And so, uh, I, but I thought, man, I don't want to sell you guys short on this. You know, it's hard so. about the medieval when we move into that, because that's the one that's super mythologized. That's yeah, the they one do that a lot of that to too. separate mm-hmm. fact from fiction. Yeah, but, when they would canonize these women and turn them into saints. That's right. You'd get all these strange legends. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So we're trying to get rid of all of that which is not documented and exactly. get back to the essence of the story to present to these women who are worth knowing because of their testimony. Yes, absolutely. And their witness for Jesus Christ to the death. Yes, to the death. Exactly. And so picking up after, you know, we talked about Perpetua during the um, fifth persecution of the church under Severus. Well, there continued to be persecution of the church. And, you know, like Cheryl mentioned, there were times, especially as, as the years go by, people become more and more kind of disgusted with uh, these uh, martyrdoms and started, you know, just not being comfortable watching these Christians die. And so what happened was a lot of people started to get saved even as they're watching. A lot of Romans would watch these martyrdoms and be so impacted and influenced by these Christians and their testimony and the fact kind of like that thing my mom said last week, that they just stood. You know, they just stood for Jesus, full of faith and just resolved to stand in him. And so uh, one of those gals was uh, Agatha, and she came along during the seventh persecution of the church under the emperor Decius. And Decius really wanted to restore the glory of Rome and traditional Roman religion, which was why he really took offense to uh, the Christian religion and ethic. And he was so offended that they would not worship the emperor. So he instigated the first empire-wide persecution. A lot of these other ones were localized, but he said, no, we're going to just really try to get rid of Christianity in every corner of the empire if possible. Now, what year was this? This was, this would have been around uh, the 240s, 250s. Mm-hmm, because after him, you have the, Domitian who tried to do the same yeah, thing. Domitian, all the, yep, exactly. It kind of, from there, kind of spiraled down. <laughs> And so Agatha was a very godly, very accomplished, uh, beautiful woman. And uh, she lived in Sicily, where uh, the governor, Quintain, uh, fell in love with her. He didn't know she was a Christian. Uh, And so he kind of expected that as the governor, she would, you know, just basically cater to his every whim. And so he tried to put the moves on, you know, and tried to seduce her several times, but she resisted him and he got kind of upset with this. And so what he did was he put her in the custody of this notorious prostitute, Aphrodica. And he thought that being in that environment would kind of wear her down morally. Uh, obviously that didn't work. And there's this, you know, these stories about how the Lord really just miraculously enabled her to resist these assaults on her purity, basically. I mean, it really was kind of miraculous how he kept her in that place. And when Quintain realized that it wasn't working 
And then when he discovered that she was a Christian, he said, ha, well, now I can really show vengeance on her for rejecting me and all that sort of a thing. And so his lust basically turned to hatred at this point. And he had her scourged, burnt with red hot irons, torn with hooks, rolled naked on coals and glass until she died. But during this time, she was recorded by eyewitnesses as praying, Lord, my creator, you have protected me from the cradle. You have taken me from the love of the world and given me patience to suffer. Receive now my soul. And so she uh, died uh, February of the year 251. And so that was an account that was, again, there was an eyewitness account for that. And we know that that happened. Uh, a little later on, and this is during that last, that 10th persecution of the church, which was known as terminalia. Um, you know, we might recognize the word terminate from that because uh, that's the Latin word for termination, which is the goal of that persecution. This was the last major persecution of the church. And it's interesting because this was the most horrific and the most widespread and complete persecution as the Romans were trying to uh, really eradicate Christianity we from should, the empire. We should really say the Roman Empire that was doing it because, you know, we tend to think of Italians. Oh, yeah. And the Roman <laughs> Empire, you know, you've got Germany as a— Oh, you know, it was—yes, they were all provinces. France. Yeah. They were all these provinces that all came together under the auspices of the Roman Empire. But this mm -hmm. is this is massive. And you do yeah. have, you know, these different emperors. In fact, Domitian on he minted— Diocletian. A, yeah. Diocletian, mm -hmm. thank you. He minted a coin that said, in my day, I wiped out Christianity. You know? Whoops. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't Got quite that have wrong. that one right. Got yeah. that one wrong. Yes. Famous last words. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, but that was his goal. That's why he said that because mm -hmm. he was really, I, I think they were really confident. Like, yeah, we got this. We, we can totally wipe this out. That was the express purpose of Terminalia. And so uh, Agnes was one of the key martyrs during this time whose account we have. And she was, I mean, really her um, martyrdom kind of sparked a revival. So that's why she's so significant. And what's interesting about her, this is kind of like what we see with Blandina, you know, this weak slave woman. Well, Agnes was uh, just a little 13-year-old girl. That's what's crazy about her story. She was so young, just this lovely girl, came from a Christian family and gave her life to Jesus when she was really young. Even though she was 13, you got to remember that this was, you know, ancient times. And so often girls were either betrothed or married very young. And so she actually had a lot of suitors already uh, at this time, but she turned them all down because she just wanted to be set apart for Jesus. She didn't want to get married. She just wanted to live her life for Christ. Well, in the year 304, uh, one of the guys that she rejected vindictively kind of turned on her and went to the authorities and said, hey, this girl's a Christian. So I was like, oh, what a jerk. Anyway. You know, they say that hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, but like, yeah. we're seeing some men that are scorned. Some pretty scorned men here. That's yeah. right. <laughs> Did you mention that she was from a wealthy family? Nobility. Uh, she was from a Christian family. So, yes. Okay. Uh, and, and a well-to-do. Well-to-do. Yes. Yeah. Nobility is what they said. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is pretty remarkable. Uh, apparently, though, it was against Roman law to execute a virgin. And so they decided, well, let's put her into a brothel and uh, have her just, you know, stripped down and everything. And eventually, you know, she'll be, I'm sorry to say, she'll be violated and then we won't have to worry about it if we do have to execute her. Just horrific mentality that went into all of this. But it is important to mention some of the, you know, things these women went through. Uh, they were mistreated and abused um, beyond what we might normally think of. It wasn't just being thrown out into the arena, but they were also violated and all that sort of a thing. And so apparently, though, this is kind of crazy. As, as she's put into this environment, the Lord uh, miraculously protected her 
from every attempt on her chastity. And this is where you get a little bit of the legend. We don't know exactly what happened, but the story says that there were some guys who actually tried to attack her, but they were blinded whenever they would attempt to do this or struck dead. Now, you know, again, some of this stuff is legend. However, there were some accounts, uh, eyewitness accounts, even when we look at Polycarp's story, where uh, miraculous things did happen as a witness as a testimony to those around them. And so they ended up having to bring her in and put her on trial anyway. They're like, well, we better just go through with it. And so they brought her out, put her on trial, and eventually had her beheaded. Even though, I, I don't know if it was a safe face kind of move, like, well, we already put her in prison. We, we don't want it, everybody to know that our plans have been frustrated. And so uh, the amazing thing about this, though, was that the Roman authorities' plans were thwarted because here they are thinking, we're just going to get rid of this girl. She'll just be kind of out of the way. But... So many people who saw her particular martyrdom were so impacted that, like I mentioned before, a revival pretty much broke out. But let's talk about how she was finally killed yeah. because she was bound to a stake. Yeah. And supposedly they put a fire under her, but the flames would not take. So then yeah, she was— Another miracle there. <laughs> then she was stabbed to death. Yeah. You know, it starts to become embarrassing for the mm -hmm. Roman authorities. And mm -hmm. so it's just kind of like, let's just dispatch her. Let's get rid of her quickly. Move on. Mm -hmm. And yet the Lord wouldn't let that just happen according to their wishes. He actually— used used it for a powerful testimony. And then there was also her foster sister. Are you going to talk no, about No, go her? ahead. Go grab that one. Um, Emertiana. Mm. And she was found praying at her grave. And because she was found praying, um, she was taken out and then stoned wow. after that, but Gosh. gave the testimony of Jesus. But she was one because you were talking about people who were immediately impacted. And one of them was this foster sister was wow. immediately impacted by her foster sister's death yeah. and, you know, went to the grave and started praying mm. and, you know, repenting, wanting to, I love that. you know, know the Lord. And when they saw her praying again, because it it was against the Roman authorities, kind of like what you see in the book of Daniel, because you were to yeah, pray only yeah. to Darius in the book of Daniel. So they believe that you should only pray to the emperors. Yeah. That, and you should only pray in the emperor's name. So people that were caught praying to God directly, the Lord, Yahweh, Jesus, Yeshua, he was stoned for that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that, that's an excellent point there, too. Again, so many people got saved. And actually, Agnes is one of those uh, that you see most represented in artwork. Uh, that's how powerful her testimony was. You see a lot of uh, representations of her. And, you know, she was one of those that the believers at that time really took comfort and were inspired by her testimony. But let's talk about this, too. That I mean, she gave her chastity, mm -hmm. her purity. She wanted to stay pure for the Lord. Yeah. And I think that in our culture right now, chastity is not valued. Abstinence mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. not valued. And I think people are so into my rights. Yeah. This is what I get. And these people, they gave the flesh, up. flesh, what I want. Right. And I mean, it would have been so easy for her to marry, to have a life of nobility, to, mm -hmm. you know, raise children with this ungodly man. That's what everyone did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she made, I mean, her choices were hard, but she mm -hmm. made every choice for the Lord and the Lord honored every choice she Absolutely. made. Absolutely. Uh, fun fact with her, this is kind of interesting, when you look at her in artwork, so look for this next time, folks, you go to museums, if museums ever open again here. Um, <laughs> if you look at artwork sometimes, you'll see, if you ever see a picture of somebody with holding a palm branch, uh, that's usually a symbol that they were martyred because that was considered a symbol of their victory over death, victory over the enemy as they went into eternity. And Agnes in particular is usually pictured holding a lamb, partly because 
a lamb was a symbol of purity and innocence and youth. But also there's a little play on words here because the word for lamb in Latin is agnus. Some of you guys might be familiar with that. Agnus and her name was Agnes. So there's just a change of one letter there. And so there was a little bit of a play on words there that Agnes was like that innocent agnus lamb. You know, what's interesting too is I think one of the problems sometimes because of being Protestant that we dismiss the saints. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And what we need to do is humanize them. Yes. Not dismiss them, but simply humanize them. And, you know, even speaking about Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mm -hmm. that she was a young virgin woman that found favor in the eyes of the Lord. She was not the queen of heaven. You know, we'll (laughs) we'll take that out of the picture, but we will say she was amazingly used for the glory of God. Mm -hmm. And these women, though they've been mythologized, when you get down to their story and their testimony, they're worth knowing. Yes, absolutely. We don't want to dismiss anyone because, oh, they were canonized in what is now the Catholic Church. You have to remember, this back is, then, this was the church. Yes. This was it. I mean, yes. it wasn't like there was some other well, thing Catholic going on. Catholic means universal. And Catholic, yes, exactly. And so originally it was a good term intended yes. to mean we are all the body of Christ together. And so these women, I mean, really sincerely loved Jesus and were just beautiful testimonies. And so that kind of brings us actually transitioning out of that period. Now, we talked about, like I said, terminalia, termination, that final 10th persecution of the church that was so horrific. What's interesting is, as this was just the worst persecution, it also ended up being the last one, which nobody would have expected. You would have either thought that, yes, all the Christians were eradicated from the empire, or it was just going to continue to get worse and worse. But something happened that halted this entire process. And we'll get to that in just a second. Mm. But one of the interesting things, too, even before that, is that the Christians, they were not allowed public gatherings. Mm. And so that they began to meet underground. I've actually, have you been to the catacombs in Rome? No, I've too. actually been to the catacombs in Rome and it's probably the only place that you'll see Christian graffiti <laughs> where the graffiti is all edifying and mm. the graffiti is all like precious with scriptures and some of it will show the persecutions with inspiring words, but they would meet in these underground caverns. This yes. is where they would congregate and often hide. And it was interesting because their persecutors who would come to collect them from the caverns. There are all these testimonies that they got lost and never found their way out. And you could find their bones. Like years later, they would have died in the catacombs. But the Christians, they said they were led by the Holy Spirit and naturally could find their way out. And it it. became this um, system of underground tunnels where they knew where to come up, Mm -hmm. where to go in. Smart. And so God had his remnant also that he was protecting during this time. Absolutely. He did. He preserved his people and just amazing ways. And so, you know, one of the ways he preserved his people was by finally allowing that persecution to end, saying this far, but no further. (laughs) And what happened was an emperor came to the throne who really just basically changed the course of history. But his mother first. Exactly. Exactly. And her name is? Helena. Yes. (laughs) Nice one. So that's uh, who we're going to talk about next, just leading in here. Now, Helena, uh, her origins aren't really known, but she was probably the daughter of an innkeeper from what we understand. And she was born around the year 246. Uh, She married a Roman general named Constantius. And that name might sound kind of familiar to you as we go along here. And he eventually became a co-emperor of the Roman Empire right after Diocletian. So he's coming in right on the tail end of this whole Terminalia thing. And Constantius kind of ends it in the Western half of the empire. He's like, okay, the persecution of Christians, I'm over this. 
Now, um, he actually, Constantius, not a great guy. He divorced uh, Helena because he was, uh, you know, a political climber and she was uh, of low birth. So she was kind of considered a hindrance, kind of like baggage in his life. So he got rid of her. But in 272, before that happened, she had given birth to a son named Constantine, who might be a very familiar name. And he would become, after his dad passed away, the emperor who took over the entire Roman Empire and ended the persecution of the church with the Edict of Toleration in the year 311. And uh, he became one of the most significant figures in Western history. But what's neat about him is there's this famous story about how he became a Christian when he went into battle. Yes. and saw a sign in the sky Which of was the cross yes. Yes, saying, in this sign, conquer. And so he goes to battle and he was a serious underdog. The Battle of Milvian Bridge, his rival's army was four times larger than his. He wins the battle, attributes it to Jesus, gets saved. But what a lot of people don't realize is that he probably was saved more from the influence of his mother, Helena, who was a Christian. So she had given birth to Constantine, raised him, and she had given her life to Jesus and had an influence on him beyond just this particular incident where he was in battle and saw the sign of the cross. And so it's cool because the two of them together became a real force in society after his conversion. And they uh, begin to establish the church, uh, fund new building projects. And um, these are some of, if you've ever traveled around, you know, in Europe, you see these churches called basilicas. Those were those ancient churches from that time period. And they begin spreading Christianity around the empire. And Constantine basically gave his mom free access to the imperial treasury so that she could just give to the poor as much as she wanted. Um, and she, like I said, went and funded a lot of churches. Really remarkable woman of faith. And uh, she even went to Israel um, in search of the cross of Jesus. <laughs> and, you know, this is where the legend comes in that, oh, she found the cross of Christ. Well, you know, um, this is the beginning of the Byzantine, what we call the Byzantines, yes. too. And so you'll see things in Israel and they'll say this is the Byzantine. Yeah. And you've yeah, got yeah. Byzantine arches. Um, but it is really interesting in Israel because she would go and supposedly rumor mm, has yes, it yes, or yes, rumor. <laughs> legend has it that she would get these feelings in different places and call it a holy site. And so wherever she had one of her visions or one of her yes, episodes, right. uh, they would erect a cathedral. Uh, but she's the one also who chose the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. But mm -hmm. you got to remember, too, she's on a tour. So these people are taking her around saying, this is a holy site. This is a holy site. And she just kind of goes with it. Yeah. And so when you go to Israel, though. Helena is, uh, or Helena, mm -hmm. she's very, very... Did you say revered, revered or honored? Oh, revered, or I would say known. No, you know, yeah. no. They'd Maybe say, well, known, yeah. you know, we don't know if this is authentic, but this is. She also <laughs> collected... Said. Um, holy relics. Yes. So yes, she's yes, known yes. for like, you One know, getting the chalice uh, that Jesus used at the Last Supper. And she collected all these things. What we think probably happened, though, is there were merchants who were selling her things and she was just so in earnest. Yes. And very sincere. In the early Orthodox Church, the Greek Orthodox Church. And in that time, they were very superstitious. Yeah. And they tended to put a lot of faith in relics. Mm -hmm. And so she's collecting these relics. She thinks she's doing 
in a good thing, building people's faith. Yes, exactly. And that's a, that's important to understand with a lot of these people, especially later when we start talking about people like the mystics and stuff. Like Cheryl said, it's easy to dismiss these people like from ancient times. It's like, oh, they were just, you know, saints and da 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 and all this stuff. But to recognize the fact that these people sincerely loved the Lord. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they love Jesus. And her whole goal in doing this, she's trying to like validate, like, look, Jesus was real. He was a real person in history. I mean, she's doing all of this in the name of being a defender of the faith. She really so is. honor. Yeah. And you've got to remember, again, they've come out of these years of underground, these years of being mm-hmm. um, persecuted. persecuted. Yep. And now she's coming. And as you said, she's bringing this validity, kind of apologetic. Apologetic, kind of. Yeah. To that, to the Christian faith, the apologetics that would have been accepted at that time in that mm-hmm. place. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting because C.S. Lewis, when he looks at kind of modern criticism, when he did, you know, this would have been the 50s, looked at modern criticism against some of the early church figures mm. and against church fathers. He would call it chronological snobbery. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yes, you've said that before. Because we do do that. We project how we see things now onto the past and we don't understand the context that these people were living in. I mean, I could go on about how people treated Constantine like he was the man of the hour and they gave him too much say in church affairs. But if you're if you lived during that time, you would understand he ended the persecution of the church. They loved him for that because it's like, oh, good, we don't have to be underground. We don't have to run for our lives anymore. So, you know, just to understand the context really is helpful to appreciating these people. And it's easy to look back on somebody and say, well, you did this wrong and you did that wrong. But you weren't living then. Exactly. And you didn't have those situations. Exactly. But Helena really was an amazing woman because Mm -hmm. she really is part and parcel at the end of the persecution, the mass persecution, Mm -hmm. the government Mm -hmm. persecution against Christianity and against Christians. Yes. And that was such a bold move because think about it, all her predecessors, every woman who had stood for faith before her usually gave their life for it. Yeah. And so for her to be outed as a Christian and, you know, her husband's wife and being a Christian, in fact, you know, some say that that's why he divorced her was because of her Christianity, her religious uh, fervor for Jesus. And so for all those reasons, she really is a woman worth knowing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, again, remember too, she the role she played in her son's life. And that leads me to the last gal I want to talk about today, Monica. Oh, Monica. And so I love Monica. And I so- love Monica. <laughs> Are you sure we have enough time for Monica? Let's do it. Because so, she's one of my favorites. Oh, she is? Okay. Yes. Well. So uh, she was born near Carthage to Christian parents, and she married an unbeliever named Patricia. Sometimes that would happen because there were arranged marriages. You're forced into these situations. So she's in this marriage with this man who has a violent temper. He's totally godless. But Monica started praying for him and being a godly example to him. Uh, like 1 Peter 3, 1 says, you know, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. She took that to heart and really wanted to win him over by her conduct and prayers. And sure enough, eventually, after years of prayer, Patricius got saved and then he was baptized. Well, he ended up dying in the year 371, which left Monica a widow. A rich widow. A rich widow. And they had had one son and his name was Augustine, who might be very familiar to our now, listeners. <laughs> Brian told me that his name is actually pronounced Augustine. 
Augustine. Augustine. Augustine. And the reason why is because later there will be another Augustine. Oh, yeah, that church father. So they, they, (laughs) even though some people say it exactly the same, a lot of people make that distinction. Say Augustine. Mm -hmm. So he was uh, incredibly intelligent, very uh, well educated. Again, they were from a well-to-do family. But he was on the wild side. He was so wild, irreverent, promiscuous, totally godless. Later on in his uh, famous confessions, in fact, this is uh, one of the first significant autobiographies in history, Confessions of St. Augustine. Uh, He wrote about how he could not get a grip on uh, his problem with lust. That in particular just brought him down every time. And so this was a deep-rooted issue in his life. And when you read his confessions, you see the torment he went through, just trying to, you know, come out from under these these lusts and desires that just consumed him. And so Monica was so grieved by his lifestyle that she actually kicked him out of the house for a while. She was trying the tough love approach, but kept praying fervently for him. She figured, hey, I prayed my husband into the kingdom. There's got to be hope for this son of mine. And so throughout the years of his education, the beginning of his career as a professor, well, what we would call a professor, a teacher, um, she just kept persevering and praying for him. So in the year 383, he's about 29 years old. Let's go before that, though, because before that, she has a bishop in the town and she goes to him and she says to the bishop, please stop my son. Please talk to my son. Do you have that in your notes? Ambrose? No, it's oh, not Ambrose. Okay. It's a different one oh, than Ambrose. Okay. But I, I totally see that because Ambrose will come in later. Yes, 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 yes. But no, this is the bishop who was before Ambrose and she begged him to stop her son. And the bishop said to her, your son's not ready. He's just not ready for that message. We have to wait till he's ready. Mm. And but he said this, he said, but God will not ignore the tears of a mother. I love that. Absolutely. So that was not Ambrose. That was before Ambrose was even, you know, that Ambrose yes. didn't want to be a church leader. No, he didn't. Reluctant so this leader. is before Ambrose became a bishop. Interesting. So, so she's like, so she's recruiting other people to pray and she other people was. That, wow. And to I get involved that. and to lecture and to talk to him. And this man wisely, and I've thought about that, that so really much. Wise. He says, he's not ready until he asks. Yep. And you know, there comes a time where you have to be ready for that. But I love that mm-hmm. too, that the Lord will not waste the tears and prayer. Of a so beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. And so she obviously just took that to heart because she continued to just be a presence. And so what happened was in uh, 383, so Augustine's about 29, Augustine is about mm-hmm. 29 years old, and he decides that he wants to go to Rome to teach rhetoric. And Monica wants to go with him. She didn't necessarily want to like live with him, but she wanted to just kind of, like I said, be a presence kind of there in his life. He didn't want her to go. Obviously, if you're not walking with the Lord, you don't want your Christian mom hanging around. And so what happened was he kind of played along with it, like, okay, mom. So they go down and they're going to get on the ship. They're going to board the ship and go to Rome. He suddenly uh, says, oh, mom, I see some friends of mine I need to go say goodbye to. You just wait here on the dock. So he goes, pretends like he's going to go say goodbye to some friends, sneaks on the ship. And while she's standing there waiting for him, the ship sails. She thinks, oh, he missed the ship. But finds out later, he snuck on the ship and just bailed and ditched her. So what a schmo, right? Not not the greatest son. He just leaves his mom standing on the dock waiting for him. And he sails off into the sunset. But I love her because she was undaunted. Um, and we don't know how or when it happened, but eventually she ends up going to Rome as well. And then on to Milan, where it, which is where he would ultimately you know, end up. And she just settles in there, serves the Lord in her community, um, and just is, like I said, a praying presence nearby, not, you know, having her hand in everything in his life, but just there. 
And I love this. She could have just spent her time uh, worrying about him, wondering what she was doing. Like, why am I even here getting homesick? But she just decided I'm going to just be fruitful where I am and just keep entrusting him to the Lord. What's interesting is by this time now, Ambrose enters, right? Yep. This is when he and comes Ambrose into the picture. enters and um, Ambrose just becomes, again, a presence. And one of the things that um, Augustine later said is that Ambrose loved him whether or not he would come to Christ or not. Mm, I love that. That he knew that Ambrose mm. was a friend for life, that he was not an object to save with Ambrose. Yes, a project. <laughs> a project. And that Ambrose bottled for him true Christianity mm. and true love. And it was that that drew him, you know, first. And then later he mm. would receive the Lord. Yes, exactly. I love that. These are all just such good reminders for us as we're praying for people. Yes, I've got one so, more point too. They said that Augustine did not become aware of how much his mother had prayed for him until after her death. And you've got that. His well, sister, him, yeah. his sister told him it was his sister mm. who had written down some of the prayers and told Augustine about his mother's fervent prayers for him. So beautiful. And so actually it was his sister who's not known. We don't know her, but, but she's a woman <laughs> worth knowing. Absolutely. But she's the one who told him how much the mother had prayed. It's you know. huge. Yeah. And and her prayers did avail. Like Cheryl mentioned, he finally did come to the Lord in the year 386. And in his confessions, after realizing what his mom had done and how she had prayed, and he some wrote say this. that was on reflection of her death and her life. He wrote his confessions. Yes, and he said, And now thou didst stretch forth thy hand from above and didst draw up my soul out of the profound darkness because my mother, thy faithful one, wept to thee on my behalf more than mothers are accustomed to weep for the bodily deaths of their children. And thou didst hear her, Lord, and despise not her tears when pouring down they watered the earth under her eyes in every place where she prayed. Thou didst truly hear her. She did not cease to bewail my case before thee in all the hours of her supplication. Her prayers entered thy presence. I mean, watering the ground with her tears. And so he recognized, I am saved because of my mom. And so it's really neat because a, a year later, Monica and Augustine were actually traveling together and Monica became ill and she died at the port of Ostia, but not before seeing the Lord really grant the greatest desire of her heart to see her son saved. And how amazing too, when you think about all that prayer that was poured into him, she just wanted to see him saved. She had no idea that God would go on and use him in just phenomenal ways in church history. He became one of the greatest figures really in the history of the church and his he, theology. Right. And he was example. Considered a bad man among bad men. Yes. I mean, he had multiple concubines, like one in every city. I mean, this is like a bad guy. Like, yes. so immoral. So, and kind of in your face immorality. And, and so yes. to get saved as gloriously and then become in church leadership, you know, an inter interesting, we'll talk about this on another program, but Ruth Graham in her book, Prodigals and Those Who Love Him, she'd written this poem about Franklin Lord. If he could just wash up on the shore of heaven, that would be good enough. And Monica might have had. That prayer, if he could just wash up yes. on the shore. Yeah, yeah. But God had other plans. Saved as though through fire. Yes. And exactly. And it's not a coincidence that Augustine is most known for his theology on grace, you know, his teaching on the grace of God. If anyone had experienced the grace of God, it was it was him. And so I just love that how all those prayers came to a greater fruition than Monica could ever have realized. And that's why yes. Agatha and Agnes. And Helena, Helena, and Monica. Monica are women you should at least know about. Absolutely. So they're women worth knowing. Thanks for joining us on Women Worth Knowing. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett.